2: Hi everyone, and welcome to Confessions of a Debut Novelist, with me, your host, Chloe Timms. This week, I'm talking to Margaret Meyer about her historical novel, The Witching Tide. Margaret was born in Canada and grew up in New Zealand, and now lives in Norwich. She worked in publishing and literature promotion before retraining as a mental health therapist, and in 2020, she completed an MA in creative writing from UEA. In this episode, we discuss why she was inspired by women who had been wiped from the history books, writing a non-verbal character, and how working in male prisons taught her the power of story. But first, here's Margaret, with an excerpt from The Witching Tide.
3: She took the doll down to the kitchen, a fly on its back spun frantically on the windowsill and she watched it without really seeing before pulling the shutters closed. Her apron with its map of stains hung from a peg and she put it around her neck. Prissy's skillet swung from the beam and she lifted it down and put it on the trivet and lit the big candle beneath. The copper flushed as it warmed. She pressed the doll's legs into the open pan and after a moment, the wax began to yield. She turned it upside down and repeated the process holding the doll's head to the heat until the wax was doughy. She took the pan off the trivet and set it aside. With her thumb, she stroked the curve of the head. Her body felt cold and partly vacant, as if her own solid self had been nudged aside to make room for something other, a force, a spirit. It coiled up her, very chill. The doll's wax skin was clouding, Its eyes as yet were blind. A small draught toyed with the flame of the trivet candle and the strands of hair that hung about her face. The flame died. With its disappearance came hesitation and she put the doll quickly down and stepped back, wrapping her arms around her ribs as if to reassure herself of her own substance. Her undershift needed washing. Her own musk came from it, reassuring. Surely, always, it was better to do something, to take things in hand. From the table, the doll looked out. Already it was cooling, firming its purpose. She relit the trivet candle and held the doll's nether end over the heat until the wax softened again, and then inserted her cuttings knife, splicing long ways up until the blade came to a knob of wax. Let that be its groin. She teased the segments apart. Let these be its legs. She propped it against the ale jug. It was done. Was it done? In her chest, excitement and alarm jostled, speeding up her heart. She picked it up again to study it. The thing seemed to quiver. She felt air moving around her as though people, women were brushing past. She could hear rustling skirts, felt the touch of hands on her face. She held it away from herself at arm's length. The noises stopped. Her heart calmed a little. The doll was just there, a child's toy, a stick of wax.
2: Hi, Margaret. Welcome to the podcast. I'm really happy to have you on with me today to discuss your debut novel, The Witching Tide.
3: Hi, Chloe. I'm so pleased to be here.
2: So, Margaret, can you start by giving us a little intro to The Witching Tide and tell us what it's about?
3: The Witching Tide is a historical novel, it's set in East Anglia in 1645, uh, just as a major witch hunt is getting underway. It's a a real historical witch hunt. And uh, it's set in a village I made up called Cleftwater, which is somewhere on the Norfolk Suffolk coast. And it's about uh, Martha, who is a servant in the household of a wealthy merchant. Um, And what happens to Martha when the witch hunt gets underway, her friends and people, women she cares about, start being arrested and carted off to jail. And ultimately Martha herself is threatened by the witch hunt. And it's really about how she reacts to that, the choices she has to make. Is she going to act in a way to save her friends, but puts her own life at risk, or what? Mm.
2: So that's
3: what it's about.
2: What was it about this time period in history that, and witch trials in general, then that kind of captured your attention and made you want to write about it?
3: Uh, it well, the actual inspiration for the book came from um, a visit I made to. Uh, which is a really gorgeous seaside town in Suffolk and um, I, I've been there quite a few times but this particular day and from memory this was back in around 2016 sometime like that um, I'd gone to visit Alborough and discovered that the museum of Alborough, which is in the Moot Hall which is a very famous Tudor building very beautiful Tudor building right by the sea on this particular day, the moot Hall was open. so um, I went in, I paid my two pounds to look around the museum. and, and um, on one, one wall, they had a couple of panels about, about the witch hunt and about the fact that one of the two witch hunters, a man called Matthew Hopkins, had made several visits to Alborough um, at the at the townspeople's request to to help them uh, get rid of their witches. And I discovered that um, one of those visits had really fatal consequences. So um, in the space of a week, uh, seven women were hanged. Um, And at the time, I was very shocked that those women weren't named on the panel, whereas all the other sort of players in this particular episode were named, the witch hunter and his, uh, accomplice who was a woman, which Hunter called Mary Phillips, they were both named. So I discovered much later when I was doing my research that of those seven women, only two are named in the record and the other five are not named, which is a curious thing because everybody else is named, the judge, the jury, the woman who supplied the food to the prisoners, the man who made the nooses the name of the hangman, they're all named and their fees are in the accounts book for Orbro of that in in 1646, but not not these five women. And I was very affected by that, very upset. And that really was the the main spur to writing the book. I, I just felt it's bad enough to lose your life, but if you've lost your name, then you really are obliterated from history. And that seemed to me to be a double injustice. Absolutely. And then the other thing that spurred me was um, I hadn't realised that women were involved in um, the searching of witches. So if a woman was accused of witchcraft, she would first of all be walked, and that meant being walked up and down um, day and night with without stopping um, and nothing to eat, only, you know, sips of water and this could go on for days on end until the poor woman was obviously completely exhausted. Um, And at that point, very often the woman would confess, obviously, Um, or perhaps she wouldn't confess. Um, But either way, you were very likely to be um, body searched by uh, women called prickers. So these were uh, usually midwives. The, searching couldn't, the body searching obviously couldn't be carried out by male witch hunters. So they would bring in um, experienced midwives who obviously you know, knew about women's bodies, and they really would search you from the crown of your head to the soles of your feet and everywhere in between, including your genitals. And they were looking for what they thought were witches' marks or marks left by your imps from where you'd suckled the imps. And this could be any unusual-looking to them, unusual looking piece of skin, a freckle, a birthmark, a mole, anything. And they would prick these pieces of skin, these bits of skin with needles and lancets. And the theory was that if the skin didn't bleed, this was kind of pretty conclusive evidence that, that you were a witch and those were witches' marks. And then from there, I just, I, I, I just got thinking what if kind of thoughts, you know, the way we writers do. You know, what if you were a woman, a woman in this village, and you were a midwife, and uh, all of a sudden the witch hunter rides into town, and you get caught up in this witch hunt, and furthermore you're drafted in to do the searching and cricking. and that's that's where that's when I knew I had a plot that I yeah, wanted to absolutely. explore.
2: I've spoken to a lot of historical fiction writers and it's usually a kind of gap in history or a, an absence of something. And also, like you say, like a a very strongly emotional connection somehow to your research that, you know, provokes something within you. And obviously you, you felt that. I wonder whether you could tell us a little bit more about your main character, Martha, and how you created her. Did you kind of have to work out a lot of who she was or did you find that kind of the more that you wrote her the more she appeared to you
3: it was definitely the latter so um she's she came to me as just like a almost like a photograph I could just see this woman standing in a garden uh, and I could see that she was a you know an older woman um I could see that she was in the dress of the day, so that gave me a, a steer. Um, and I could see that the plants really mattered to her. So that's that's where where I began with her. And much like any character, it's definitely you hang out with them, and and the more you write, the more they sort of show themselves to you. So that's how it very much went with with Martha. One of the curious things about her, though, was um, I didn't know that she couldn't speak. And um, to begin with, I, well, I made this discovery when I sat down to write the first dialogue scene, and uh, merrily, you know, writing away, and then it came to the point where Martha had to say something, and it was really, really difficult to write. Um, and I remember thinking, oh, that's strange. And kept writing and then the next line of dialogue from Martha Same thing happened again and then it happened again and this went on for quite some weeks um, and I was very kind of baffled by it um, and then it came to me that oh I, I think she's got a problem with actually talking. Uh, kept writing and then then realised oh I I don't think she can talk, I think this is the problem. Um, And at that point, it did stop my my work, it did stop the drafting, because I was sitting there thinking, how am I going to finish a novel with a main character who doesn't speak? And it took me a long time to figure that one out. It was a big technical challenge. Mm. And in the end, I thought, okay, well, I'm just going to press on. I will write very you know, kind of scanty dialogue to kind of indicate to myself what she's thinking or what she might be saying um, in these passages. And then I'll have to go back and figure it, figure out. And about 18 months later, when I was beginning to second draft, there was this problem confronting me again. But by that time, I knew the character so much better. And one day it just came to me that, she was using a kind of sign language I mean, not british sign language as we would understand it but her own you know her own gestures which formed a language that people very close to her and and know her well could understand but was much less understandable by people who weren't who didn't know her so well and then the kind of gift in that began to become obvious because it, i realized that that this was very much emblematic of one of the major themes of the book, which is the way women have been silenced and are still, through history, um, when in, in adverse conditions. Um, and so at that point, it it became a really, uh, there was a lot of energy around that for me. Mm.
2: I, I love that. Don't you love this about writers and writing where, we start something and that idea or that character is so powerful that we end up giving ourselves over to them. I mean, you could have gone, actually, do you know what? I am going to make Martha speak because it makes my life easier. But you chose not to because you knew that was the right decision. And I often think, I, I always think this with writing is that often the decisions that are the The things that are hardest and that we, we naturally almost push back against for a little while because we think, no, it's too much work, are usually the right things to do. They're usually mm-hmm. the things that, I mean, I remember getting back uh, an editor's letter, uh, my first editor's letter, and my editor said, I think you need to restructure the novel and change this. And my, ame- my immediate reaction was no, because it's too much work. Mm-hmm. And then I thought, no. They're right. I need to do this. So you must have had a similar experience of writing Martha
3: absolutely, absolutely, as you've described it. but I think i I always feel like the characters are only ever lending themselves to me. You know they're not they're not mine. I'm just I'm just kind of eavesdropping on them somehow. And so it would have been a really disrespectful thing to do to force Martha to speak.
2: Mm. Um, yeah. I was wondering whether you had any Um, kind of extra support from your publisher in terms of sensitivity reads or anyone any other um, authenticity editors kind of looking over your work because obviously writing a character who can't speak there might be uh, little intricacies that those of us that can speak miss out on I wonder whether you experienced that. Uh,
3: We did a lot of discussing um, with my publishers um, about about this whole issue. So, although we didn't consult a sensitivity reader, um, my, my editors went and had detailed conversations with um, the Hachette Accessibility Network. Um, and as a result of that, we decided not to use the word mute anywhere in the manuscript or on any of the promotional or marketing materials associated with the book so that was an important decision and um I also wanted um to take I, I took I went to extra lengths to show that this is it's not attempting in any way to kind of stand in for other people it's Martha's non-verbalness and part of this, I guess, ties in with my, my background as a mental health therapist. So I've worked with clients, not many, but I have worked with them who've um, had periods of not speaking for one reason or another, or who've become very silent, for example, as a response to trauma. So some of that informed the thinking and the writing as well. So it was very carefully thought through.
2: Mm. Yeah. While we're on the topic of kind of, I guess, going the extra mile, you certainly went the extra mile when it comes to, when it comes to your research, um, and uh, I imagine a book like this has is such an undertaking, because there's not only the fictitious, but there's also a blending of the real events, and it struck me that it, when I was reading a novel, that it's so, the writing is so rich, that you're not just researching the events and the time period but the way you use language in your novel really really showed to me that you must have spent hours and hours and hours researching so can you talk to us a little bit like on a practical level how did you go about the research how much did you do before you started writing was there a point where you said okay I'm absolutely sated now of research I'm going to write or did you kind of just gently put it aside and start and then kind of dip in and out of it what, what was what your process like
3: so my process with the historical research was um i i started by doing quite a lot of reading around and um, and looking into accounts of witch trials in the uk um so i read a lot of books um i went to the records office Offices and looked at um, transcripts of some of the actual witch trials that had occurred. Um, so that gave me a kind of basic, it gave me, put some ground beneath my feet in terms of how a witch trial was carried out. And in particular, obviously, there were many witch trials in, in England and Scotland, particularly. Um, through the Middle Ages and into the early modern period, which is which is when the book is set. Um, but I was all the time focusing in on this one, the East Anglian witch hunt, because it was England's deadliest witch hunt. So for me, that that carried extra resonance. We don't know the true. We will never know the actual figure of how many people died, but it's something between a 300 people. Um, so I would guess maybe approaching 200 people and most of those people were women and they were all innocent. So I felt very important to do that, to get facts, some key facts pinned down. Um, once I felt I had that, then I started writing. And then I did, as you've just described, I was dipping in and out of the research all the time. And um, because the the landscape, uh of the village and Martha's landscape, she's also a herbalist. So there are there are a lot of scenes in the book where she's responding to the landscape or somehow interacting with it. So um I also did quite a lot of research into places. So I researched Alburgh, for example, which inspired quite a lot of my made-up village and um states. So moving out of East Anglia there, but States on uh, north Yorkshire, the east coast of Yorkshire that also inspired part of the village places like Great Yarmouth and Lowestoft I read kind of biographies of these towns um, and I read books about the flora and fauna of these places as well And Martha's a midwife so uh, I did quite a lot of research into beliefs and practices around midwifery some more general research into the lives of women in, in the 17th century, although you know, they were in a way less, less useful because all the accounts that have survived are obviously left by women wealthy enough to be able to sit down and write their day books and journals and things like that. But that, so that was all going on as I was writing. Um, and then lockdown came, so it put a stop to all the primary research. So from there on in really, I was just using the internet a lot. And I discovered actually I could get a bit strategic about the research. So I'd be writing a scene and there might be a specific uh, object in the scene. So I would just research that. Did it exist at that period in history? Yes or no. If it did, you know, what did it look like, to feel like, et cetera. And just put those details in. So the research is very fascinating. You spent hours yeah. researching very small things that, that, you know, end up on the cutting room floor, so to speak. Mm. So and then, in terms of the language, a tool that was just invaluable—something called Google Ngram Viewer. Maybe you've come across that, mm. but um, just invaluable for researching actual words and phrases to check were they in use at that time or not. Um, so that was that was just such a helpful tool. And uh, by and large, I would go with what. Ingram
2: said. Did you get a bit Um, obsessive about that though? Was it a case of sometimes you almost doubted yourself and were looking at words and then you thought oh you know I better not use this word just in case?
3: There were a few points there was a a couple of scenes where I really wanted to refer to something as you know electric for example and um, so in the first draft I just put that word in as a you know as a placeholder Um, adjective but then I yeah I was disciplined about going back and taking Mm. things like that out but I I mean I just love I love that part of the work and I I always work with a thesaurus on the desk so I just love choosing the words is one of the aspects of writing that I just love the most so it's Mm. it's no hardship to spend the time looking at looking (laughs) at language in that way
2: I can tell because your your writing is absolutely stunning I wondered whether uh, by the sounds of it sometimes it's something you pencil in for later but it does does that your kind of the the richness of your language does that come out in your first draft do you think or is that something you go back and kind of flesh things out and and kind of you know embellish or or do you think that that because you enjoy that so much it comes out initially
3: it's definitely there from the get go because I do I do enjoy it so much mm. and people you know People when I was doing the MA, people would comment on, on the nature of the language even at first draft stage. So yeah, that is really and truly how I write, which is one of the reasons why I don't necessarily write very fast. Mm, mm. Um, but yeah, I like to I, I like to immerse myself in the language from the from the very beginning.
2: Yeah, you and you and me both. I I I always say to people, writing a beautiful sentence is my favorite thing. It's doing the kind of the plot construction and things which I find less interesting unfortunately we have to do both mm-hmm. <laughs> so um I wondered whether this novel was your first attempt at writing a novel or had you kind of had you always wanted to write a book and had other attempts you know in a in a folder somewhere or was this number one your number one shot at, at giving it a go no it wasn't my number
3: one shot and so like like lots of us, well, I always wanted to write a novel. I never really thought I could. Um, I I spent a couple of years writing a, a really um, quite terrible first novel, which is in the metaphorical bottom drawer still, <laughs> and probably will never see the light of day. And then when I got on to the um, MA at the University of East Anglia, um, I... I went into that with a with a new book, a new project, and um, I got part way through it. And then um, coming up to the end of the first semester, so that would have been Christmas time, twenty eighteen, um I had to take a different five thousand words to a workshop, and. Um, I was sitting there racking my brain, so what I could bring, and I suddenly remembered, oh, there's this this witch hunt project that I'd started years ago. So I I fetched that out of the the folder and and, knocked up 5,000 words and took those to workshop and and discovered that that there was a lot of reaction from people. was real sort of energy and interest uh, around it. So that then became my main project for the degree so technically, I suppose you could say it's my it's my third novel, or my two, two and a half novels in this one, as <laughs> this, this one came along.
2: Tell us a little bit more about your MA then, because you did the MA in prose fiction at UEA in 2020. What was that like as an experience? And what do you think the course gave to you?
3: It was an amazing experience. Um, very it's very intense. Uh, ideally, well, UEA recommends that you do it in one year. Uh, I just, with work and all the other stuff going on, I decided at the end of the first semester that I just couldn't keep up with it. So I went part time and spread it out over two years. And I'm so glad I did because it just it just gave me more thinking time. Um, and by then I was working on on this book, so it was great to have the support and the feedback from all the other writers on the course and being able to talk to much more experienced writers than me was was just invaluable. So I think the the course, one of the course's great strengths is just being able to immerse yourself in writing and be surrounded by a community of other writers who are often, often grappling with the similar challenges that you are Particularly the long form prose writers, um, and who provide in you know, so much support and encouragement. And uh, can you just quickly read this? And you know, can you? Would you mind proofreading this paragraph? And you know, just all of us helping each other out. It was a, a proper um, community experience, which was really wonderful. And I came out of it with uh, about half a manuscript. And um, I think a much clearer sense of my voice and quite a lot of encouragement. Mm. And the other thing that's fantastic about the course is that they go to some lengths. Once the academic part of the course is finished, they um, run a programme of agents visits and They run a mentoring scheme so that you're paired up with uh, a mentor who is a literary agent. And this part of the course is designed to help you make that transition from writing within academia into the the world of publishing, the world of commercial publishing. Mm. Um, And that experience was a tremendous one as well. And as a result of it, I got my agent and, and then I was on my way.
2: Oh, fantastic. So, once you'd signed with your agent, how long was it until you uh, got your book deal? was it did you do work with your agent on your manuscript, or was it kind of kind of polished and ready to go?
3: Um so uh, I got an a my agent on the strength of a chunk of novel. I sent him I think it was 30, 35,000 words um and So very obviously he knew that um, I hadn't finished the book. I guess by by the time I sent that um, extract in, I probably had 50,000 words down. So it then took me another 15 months from finishing UEA uh, to finish the whole manuscript. And my agent was very patient during that time. So I finally sent the finished manuscript off. It would have been... um, November 2021, I got the dates right, Uh, he did some work on it, so did my US agent. Not a massive amount, but the changes they suggested were really key and very, very helpful. And then it went out on submission um, in the new year, and then it went to auction and got bought. Fantastic. So I didn't do a huge amount of work with my agent, but mm. the, the, the bits of work I did were were really good, really constructive.
2: And how were you feeling emotionally when your book was like at auction? Was it a really tense, difficult time, or were you just kind of just excited that it was going to sell or whatever?
3: Oh, it was really tense. It was really nerve-wracking. And, you know, my both my agents kept saying, it will sell, it will sell but you you just, you don't know until it does sell. Mm, mm. Um, So it was, uh, and it was exciting, obviously. And funnily enough, it sold first in, um, so it sold, I think, within 48 hours in France, and then the next day it sold in Denmark. And then all this time, the expressions of interest were coming from UK publishers. Um, So it was quite a, I didn't realise that it would be quite a a period of weeks until all the sales had finished up so it's kind of on tenterhooks for quite a lot of that time.
2: (laughs) Yeah constant looking at your phone and checking your emails and things. (laughs) (laughs)
3: Yeah Yeah, and Zoom calls with prospective publishers Mm. from different time zones quite late at night and that (laughs) kind of
2: stuff. Oh brilliant so you've had a career that's centred quite a bit on literature and writing and I wondered whether you think that all these things combined has helped make you into a better writer, or give you an insight into kind of what makes a book work.
3: Those those previous lives have helped for sure. Um, I grew I grew up in New Zealand, and, and I when I graduated, okay. I I went to work for um, what was then Hodder and Stoughton in in Auckland, New Zealand, and. I was lucky enough to be able to edit lots of fiction, which was my always my first love um, there. And there's no doubt that that gave me a lot of insight into um, how novels will work and the power of story. I'd say other experiences have, experiences have also had quite an influence. One of the things I did it was around the period that i was beginning to get work on this book i was um working in several prisons male prisons in norfolk and suffolk and i was running reading shared reading groups in these prisons and that was that also was very influential because i was working with um you know reading fiction with people who generally didn't like fiction who some of whom you know had very poor literacy a couple of whom could not actually read themselves Um, and it really taught me such a lot about the power of story and how story really draws it really can draw people in even if they can't read the words on the page that really doesn't matter it can draw people in it can Involve people in a way that other experiences just don't do. So, again and again, I was learning every week, learning lessons about um, how story really works for people. And that was pretty invaluable as well, Hmm. for sure. Being in counseling, um, a therapeutic counselor for 15 plus years, hearing other people's stories, stories about their lives, their self narratives. That's all, that's all in the mix as well. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Sure.
2: I guess you, you kind of absorb the, the storytelling structure, even if you're not aware that you're doing that. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I was wondering how the kind of whole experience of being published has been for you and whether you can think back to this past year or 18 months and give any advice to anyone that is about to embark on being a debut novelist so i'm thinking of maybe the 2024 cohort that are eagerly waiting their books to come out in the world what would your advice be to them about how to how to deal with the kind of publishing industry for the first time
3: um my advice would be find friends, allies, people who will support you in all ways, practical ways. Maybe that's someone who will look at reviews on Goodreads, for for example, and filter them for you so that you don't get your feelings completely crushed by somebody's not very sensitive review. Or, um, or who can provide, you know, emotional support, just uh help help you pick your spirits up on a difficult day i think finding your find your writing tribe would be would be the advice in a nutshell there we all get this about when we're writing so many writers talk about how important that is to to be able to um be in contact with other writers during the writing of our work, but actually, we need that support just as much going through the publishing process. That's been my experience, anyway. And whether that comes from family or friends or other writers, doesn't matter, but just have have at least one person near you who's going to be patient with you, the ups and downs, and who you know, believes in you and believes in your work. Mm, absolutely, I think that's crucial.
2: I do think sometimes you do need fellow writers who have been through it or going through it because sometimes there are things that happen in the publishing industry that no one else but fellow writers will understand because you think, why am I getting stressed about something so minor? But they will understand why mm-hmm. it's stressful. Whereas maybe your partner or your friends will think, what are they talking about? <laughs> like, why, you know, why are they getting worried about this? Their book's going to be published. But sometimes I think we, as writers, we, you know, we worry about the small stuff sometimes, or we don't really need to, but sometimes it happens like that. That's really
3: true, and I also think there's a bit of an expectation from non-writers that you really should be living the dream. You know, what are you what are you complaining about? You've got a deal. You've got you've got your agent. You've got a deal. You know, it's coming out. You know, you've got this fantastic hardback or paperback, and it's going into different languages. You know, wow, you should be drinking champagne every night. <laughs> of course, yeah. You know, it's not always like that as as we all know yeah absolutely. but there is that pressure to kind of live the dream very publicly
2: yes so finally margaret i was wondering if you could give us a little tease or give us a little hint about what you're working on next
3: sure so um i am working on um, a kind of sequel to the witching tide so i found um that having made up a whole village, uh, I got very attached to this village. Um and the book also features um a witching doll, a puppet, um that that still has has a, a hold on my imagination in some way. It's a very an enigmatic um object, this this mysterious puppet. Um, but it It features quite prominently in The Witching Tide and a bit like The Village, I I found having finished The Witching Tide, um, somehow that puppet wasn't quite ready to be put away. So um, the book I'm working on at the moment is it's another historical novel. Um, It's set in three different centuries um, and it's exploring, it's telling the stories of three, three different women each of whom discovers the puppet in a different way and on discovering it or on the poppet coming into their lives um, things take a different turn so that's what the second book is about
2: fantastic i love the sound of that i love um novels that have three different time periods that are all interlinked in some way it sounds fantastic margaret thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today it's been lovely to chat to you
3: it's just been a total pleasure and a privilege To be with you thank you so much
2: that was margaret Meyer talking about her historical novel the witching tide which is out now and available to buy and if you'd like to support this podcast debut authors and independent bookshops you can now shop in the confessions of a debut novelist bookshop hosted by bookshop.org which i've linked down below in the show notes if you fancy buying any of the books you've heard on this podcast then the majority of them can be found in this bookshop. And if you can, I would really appreciate you supporting me, supporting the authors and independent bookshops by buying them through this online store. Thank you so much for listening. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Or if you've subscribed already, it'd be great if you could leave me a review. See you next time.